Tony. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son, who was possessed by a spirit that has robbed him, speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, This kind can only come out by prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kevin. By the way, I know it says Pastor on my uh, jacket, and Kevin just called me Pastor Tony. Um, but to my British ears, I just hear Postman Pat. And Pastor Tony just, I don't know. Tony is fine. Just call me Tony. I'm happy with that. Um, we are looking at the Gospel of Mark, one of the four Gospels that begin the New Testament. And Mark was written by one of the followers of the uh, Apostle Peter. Uh, Peter was an illiterate fisherman. One of his followers wrote down his memories, the things that he had witnessed, and that's how we get the Gospel, and it's one of the reasons the Gospel of Mark is so vivid. Peter was a man of action, a man who worked out on the Galilee, and he records what he saw Jesus do. He doesn't speculate about who Jesus is, he just, Jesus did this, and then he did this, and then he did that. And we've seen a dramatic change in chapter 8, which is halfway through the Gospel, there are 16 chapters in Mark. Peter, for the first time, confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, that is, the Christ. Messiah in Hebrew, Christ in Greek, mean the anointed one, the one sent by God to restore the world. And with that, the gospel pivots. Previously, Jesus has been in the north of Israel, around the Sea of Galilee. He's been uh, teaching, he's been performing public miracles, he has been uh, arguing and challenging the local authorities, or they have been challenging him. He's been having these huge public events out in the wilderness. With Peter's confession, the gospel pivots, and it's now all about the journey to the cross. Jesus told the disciples that he will die on a cross and be resurrected. 
he told, he showed some of the disciples on the top of the mountain when he was transfigured what Jesus' ultimate future will be and what their future will be when uh, he appeared with Moses and with Elijah on top of the mountain. And so this whole section, and we will see in the remaining chapters, is all about the journey to Jerusalem and to the cross. And although we have a miracle here, it's really part of Jesus teaching the disciples explicitly what does it mean to be a disciple. He is preparing them for the time that when he is going to be gone. And he is showing them how to interpret their role as disciples and who Jesus really is, what it means to follow him. So let's have a look at it. Verse 14. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. As they came, remember, they've just come from the top of the mountain where Jesus was transfigured, that is, transformed, glorified, where he revealed who he really is, and God speaks from the cloud, the uh, cloud of glory around them and says, this is my son whom I love. So they have this sublime, extraordinary mountaintop experience, and now back down the mountain, back in the real world, they get back into the sordid details of ministry. The bickering and arguing the disciples apparently besieged by a crowd and by teachers of the Lord challenging them and challenging uh, Jesus. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. The man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes at his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. This is kind of embarrassing. The disciples had been given authority, and yet here they are unable to perform without Jesus, without his presence, and end up, instead of healing and driving out the spirit, arguing with teachers of the law. It's also worth noting, uh, as we go by this, this is one of the examples, you see it a lot in Mark. When he describes something, he adds these irrelevant details. When he says that the, um, the spirit that rubbed him of speech, that is the spirit of muteness, and he gives these details of what was wrong with the boy that play no further part in the story. They don't uh, show us or signify something profound or uh, at least it's not obvious what they mean. It is Peter remembering the story because that's the way it happened. It's another example. These stories in the Gospels are not just stories invented about Jesus. They are memories. And the only reason that Peter adds these details is that's what he remembers. There's no other reason that they're in the story. You in unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. You unbelieving generation. This is Jesus echoing the refrain 
from all the prophets in the Old Testament who were sent by God, brought the truth, brought God's word to Israel, and were completely ignored. Jesus here, he's just come down from the mountain, remember, is feeling the frustration that everyone who brings the word, word of God feels when they bring that word to people who don't listen, who don't pay attention, who don't learn. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. As I said, this section of Mark is all about the journey to Jerusalem and about Jesus teaching the disciples. But here he stops. He's going to teach the disciples something through this miracle. But no matter what Jesus' agenda, he always has time for other people. There is a generosity of spirit here. He puts down his own agenda, and he takes pity on the man and this child. And he gets involved. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. I'd love to have seen his face when he said, if you can. You know, this is the creator of all things. This guy's asking, can you fix this? Jesus created everything. Everything is possible for him. There's nothing that he cannot do. But notice, it's all about belief in him. It's about putting our faith in what he can do. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. Notice this is not in the middle of this crowd. Jesus has obviously taken the disciples and the man aside. This miracle is primarily uh, a time for Jesus to teach the disciples, not to show the crowd who he is. You deaf and mute spirit, he said. I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. We've seen Jesus perform miracles before. He performs miracles and wonders Oftentimes in the Bible they refer to as signs, signs that point to who Jesus really is. And we've noticed that typically Jesus does not struggle when he performs a miracle. He doesn't fight, he just speaks. Wind and waves, be quiet, and they are immediately quiet. Sick people, stand up, open your eyes, speak, and they do. Even dead Lazarus arise, and he does. Why? Because Jesus is God. He is the creator. He is Lord of all. He is the power behind every power. And because everything is created and sustained by Jesus, he doesn't have to fight creation. He just, when it's out of whack, either switches it off or restores it. There's no struggle. Paul says this about Jesus. The Son, 
Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I'm not aware anywhere, in any religion, in any literature, in any belief system, of such a broad claim of total authority and power. Jesus is Lord of all. All. Heaven and earth, every human being, everything that exists. And in him alone, all things hold together. John calls him uh, the word, which is the Greek uh, word logos, from which we get our idea logic. Jesus is the logic, the meaning, the reason that things are and the reason they hold together. All the laws of physics and of science are his fingerprints. The universe is beautiful and orderly because Jesus is beautiful and orderly. That's what we're saying when we say he's Lord of all. And that's why, when confronted by this disorderly evil spirit, he can just command it. He doesn't try to switch it off. He doesn't have to fight. He just commands it to leave and never come back. And that's all he has to do. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? Why couldn't we drive out this evil spirit? When Jesus commissions the disciples, he gives them authority. But he doesn't give them magical power where they can go off and do wonderful, magical, miracle things. What he does is commission them in his name. That's why we pray in Jesus' name, by the way. In his name, he gives us his authority and power. And we can access it through prayer. Verse 29. He replied, This kind can only come out by prayer. And the sense here is not that this is some kind of weird special demon or evil spirit which needs some uh, different technique or a level of expertise to deal with. He's contrasting you know, the spiritual world, evil spirits, that kind with humankind. Human strength, human ability, human talents are not going to work against spiritual evil. For that, you need prayer. You need a relationship with God. So what do we learn from this passage? I mean, there's a lot in it. I've gone through it pretty quickly. There's a lot you can say. But notice what it's primarily about, belief and prayer. So let's talk about that. Remember the, the context here. Jesus is teaching his disciples. And you heard Kevin say that one of the goals of this church is for us to learn to be disciples, to learn to follow Jesus. So this lesson for the disciples is a lesson for us too. And it's all about belief and prayer. 
My experience has been is that prayer is one of the most misunderstood, potentially the simplest, but also the most difficult and most misunderstood aspect of Christianity. When I first started as an intern uh, at a church in the city, I prepared for a, a group this elaborate teaching. And to start off the class, and I, my head was all about what I was about to teach. To start off the class, I kind of, as a throwaway line, said, let's pray. And nobody prayed. And I looked up, and they're all looking at each other like, what is he talking about? And it made me realize the idea of prayer is, is very strange. I mean, basically, we're speaking out loud to somebody that we can't see. That's what lunatics do. The idea of Christian prayer is, is difficult for many people. And it's not just new Christians. I've run across uh, Christians, people in the church who've been there for years, who've prayed endlessly and fruitlessly for things, for a spouse to, to become a Christian, for some sickness to be removed, for some goal in their life that they think they deserve. Um, you know, we are all aware of people that we love who get sick and die. And our prayers don't stop that. Those of you who are parents either know or will know your children are going to break your heart and do things that you don't want them to do. And you can pray and pray and pray and they will still break your heart. What is the power of prayer then? What are we doing when we pray? What is its significance? Well, a few things. Once again, remember the context. It's all about following Jesus, being his disciple. Following Jesus, Lord of all. It is not about what we want to get out of life. Prayer is our relationship with the one that we're following. The one who came into the world with a purpose. You know, the disciples here were trying to do a good thing. They were trying to drive out an evil spirit and save this boy. But Jesus is showing them, you cannot do that without reference to me, without prayer, without including God. The issue, and it is always the issue in Christian life, is not the wonderful things that we can do in Jesus' name. It is our wonderful relationship with God. That is always first. That is what it is all about, being a disciple. God can fix the world quite happily without us. We're included because he wants us to be in relationship with him. And prayer primarily is that relationship. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says this, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. We are not soldiers recruited by God, recruited by Jesus, armed with the weapons of prayer and sent out into the world to do battle with all the problems and evils. We're family, called into relationship first, called by name, because God wants to know us and wants us to know him. And that primarily is what our prayers and our worship is about. 
not our wonderful ideas about how to fix the broken world. In James, you do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. It would be very nice to have a red Ferrari or a sailboat or a diamond ring or the perfect house or the perfect relationship. That's not what prayers are about. We are not like children in our prayers asking Father Christmas to give us the presents that we want. Our prayers are designed and are available for us to be in relationship with God and to be about his business. This is again in John. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. It is only when God's word is in us, when we align ourselves with him, that our prayers will bear fruit. And notice that image. Not that we'll do amazing things. We'll bear fruit. We will grow. The things that God has put in our life will organically grow as they are fed by God's Spirit. We are like children who are growing up. When we go to the Lord's table, we are being fed so we will grow spiritually. And as we do, that is when our prayers will start to have power and change things. We are finite. We talked about this last week. And God is infinite. And he knows what needs to happen in this world far, far, far better than us. And so our prayers are never going to fight God's purpose for our life. You know, before I um, came to Hoboken, I lived in Manhattan for five years. And those of you who have been there, you know it's, it's crazy expensive and it's hard just to live there. And I was given this am amazing offer. Uh, this was the last six months of my time in Hoboken. Morningside Heights, which are uh, up on 123rd Street on Broadway, were built so that teachers and firemen and low-income people could live in the city. And by amazing set of circumstances, I was offered one of these places. Uh, a beautiful two-bedroom apartment for, it was about $100,000. I knew it was God's will. This was how God was gonna keep me in, my, in Manhattan. And I prayed and I prayed and prayed, not um, like forcefully, but delightedly. Gosh, God is going to give me this apartment because I knew that he wanted me in Manhattan and I knew that God is wonderful and he's my father and he, of course he wants it. And the apartment went to somebody else. And I was utterly, utterly devastated, gutted. How could God do that to me? How could my father let me down so terribly? Well, a few months later, this church called me to come to Hoboken. If I had been in the middle of getting that apartment, I wouldn't be here. Who knows what would have happened to this church. As soon as I came here, I realized God had a different plan. And the fact that I couldn't see it and, and screamed and shouted like a brat 
was actually just me screaming and shouting like a brat. It had nothing to do with God's good purpose. God is enfolding the world according to his will, according to his purpose, according to his schedule. It is happening. We can fight it or we can join it. But it is happening. And our prayers are not reminding God what he should be doing. Our prayers are the way that we align ourselves with God's purpose, align our future with his purpose. And as we align, our prayers begin to fulfill his purpose. That's how he releases his power to restore the world. But we have to first align ourselves, get with the program. Another way of saying the same thing is to say we have to discover our call. Why did God call us? He calls the disciples. He calls each one of us. He wants us to be part of this program, the restoration of all things. And our prayers, our relationship, that's how we begin to align ourselves and to discover our purpose. By the way, one of the things that I've discovered being a pastor is, you know, the Bible sometimes is quite opaque. And a sermon is always due. It doesn't matter how I feel, how good or bad I feel, whether I'm sick or healthy. Sundays march towards a pastor like telegraph poles on a railway line. They just keep marching. Thunk. Thunk. And sometimes I'll be desperate, like, what on earth am I going to say about this? And more than anything else, it forces me to pray. And more than anything else, it is how I've got to know God. To, to learn to trust that this is indeed his word, that I can trust that there is something to be found in every verse, and to trust that if I pray, he will show me something new. Otherwise, can you imagine having to stand up here for years and years and years and say what I know about the Bible? I would be a wraith. I would be sucked dry. So I want to end um, just by reminding us of the Lord's Prayer. And if we could go back to the slide. Who, who's got the clicker? Somebody? Can we go back to the Lord's Prayer? Um, remember what we're doing here. Jesus is teaching his disciples what prayer is all about. And, of course, he leaves his disciples with the Lord's Prayer. He leaves us with the Lord's Prayer. So this is the model, the template of prayer. You don't have to pray this every day. But if you do learn to pray, you're going to find yourself following this template because this is what prayer looks like. So let's have a look at it. There you are. Our Father. It starts with a relationship. Remember last week when Jesus was up the mountain. What did God say? This is my son whom I love. What did God say when Jesus was baptized? This is my son whom I love. What happens to us when we become Christians and we're baptized? We become part of the family of God. It is a relationship. First and foremost, we have a relationship with God. And when we go to the table, we share the family meal with God. That's why our table is the center of the church. It is the family table. 
Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We're finite. Our Father is not. He's in heaven. He is holy, perfect. That's what hallowed means. That means filled with infinite perfection, overwhelming. Remember what the disciples did when they met or saw Jesus transfigured on the mountain. They were terrified. If there's not a little bit of fear in your prayer life, you're not meeting God. There's a wonderful place in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis where the children uh, become aware of Aslan, who's the Christ figure in the book. And you have this wonderful exchange. Aslan, uh, this is the beaver talking. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, says Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe? said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. You start messing with God, you start praying to an infinite being, things are going to change. If your prayer life has become mundane and ordinary and safe, you are not dealing with God. Remember who he is. He can change everything. He can change anything. You start praying to him, you start asking, you start making that part of your life, and things are going to get disrupted. Your life is going to change direction. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When Jesus came, he said, the kingdom is here because he's the king. The kingdom of God is coming, and Jesus is king, is lord of that kingdom. And when we say, Jesus is my lord, we are citizens of that kingdom. It's happening. It is advancing. And being a Christian is about aligning ourselves with God's will. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's happening in heaven. Christ began to make it happen here on earth. And when we get with that program, that's what we're doing. We're helping God advance his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And it's going to happen with us or without us. Give us this day our daily bread. The word there, by the way, is daily ration. As you would give a ration to pilgrims on a journey or soldiers. Not red Ferraris, diamond rings, sailboats. Just what we need. God knows what we need, and that's what we should be asking for. And as we ask for it and as we receive it, we can be grateful and thankful for everything that we have because we know it's from him. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The problem is not out there. It's right in here. You remember what the, the man says. I believe Help me overcome my disbelief. Whenever you think you know God, what you're actually knowing is some kind of idolatrous idea of God. God is infinite. God is more extraordinary than anything we can possibly imagine. There is nothing in the world like him. That's why in the Bible, 
Ten Commandments, God says, don't try to make any idols. Don't try to make an image of me. Any image you have in your head of me is wrong. The problem is us. We cannot, be in, uh, we cannot begin to understand who he is. And therefore, we have to constantly ask for forgiveness. The only connection we have with God is our faith in his goodness. Not some image we conjure up of him. The problem is always in us. You know, Martin Luther said the Christian life is repentance. We constantly need to be repenting of bad ideas we have about God and turning back to the reality of who he is. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Our world and our lives are stalked by great evil. There are forces abroad in the world that would do us in, that do not wish us well. And that's why we've got to stay in relationship with our Father. When you are baptized, you receive the Holy Spirit. We never have to fear evil spirits. But there are forces in the world that will seek to do us wrong, and there are bad places in the world that we might be called to where we are going to have to depend only in God's strength and not our own. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. We don't have to fear. This kingdom is advancing. There is no power in the world, in heaven or earth, that can stand against the creator of heaven and earth. And so we're following on a journey that Jesus initiates and Jesus shows us, and when we follow him, Jesus leads. Think what happened in Jesus' ministry. When he was baptized, God said, You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. On the mountain, when Jesus reveals where he's going, God says, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. What happens when you're baptized, when I'm baptized? We receive the Holy Spirit, and we become part of the family, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. That's the guarantee. And what happens if we are faithful, if we do follow? One day we're going to stand before Christ. That's the promise. And we're going to see him face to face. And what do you want him to say? I know what I want him to say. Well done, good and faithful servant. It is the only thing worth living for. It is the essence of being a Christian. It is our destination and our purpose. It's why we pray. It's why we worship. It's why we serve our neighbors. Because he asks us to. And he has given us so much. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you that through Christ you have revealed yourself. More than that, Lord, you have revealed a way home to you. Through him, you are calling us to yourself. Through him, you are leading us through all the troubles of this broken world. Through him, you protect us and give us access to yourself in his name. Lord, be in the center of our prayers, the center of our life together, the center of our church. And one day, Lord, I pray that everyone in this room will hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. I pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Right now, as we continue...